Everybody, good morning and welcome to Christ Community Chapel. Uh, really glad that you've come. Uh, welcome those of you who are worshiping in East Hall or just tuning in. Welcome. All right, before I get into the message, let me give you a little bit of a family update. I want you to know that uh, I realize that what has happened in the last few weeks, at least for some of you, has shaken your trust in our church and in me. And I am so sorry for that. That breaks my heart. Because I have always wanted to be a man that is easy for people to trust, and I want this place to be a place that you can fully trust. And uh, to, in order to try to repair some of the trust, I want to give you updates on what we're doing now as a response to what, has, what we found out just a few weeks ago. Uh, first and foremost, we are seeking uh, to find and minister to the young adults in the Philippines who have suffered the most and the greatest hurt. We have contacted some international uh, missions uh, this past week, Compassion International, International Justice Mission. We contacted people in the Philippines and then people also in Australia to try to figure out the very best way that we can participate in the healing of these young adults, because that is the most important thing. Uh, secondly, we are seeking reconciliation. Uh, for everyone that we have a broken relationship with, we feel like that's God's heart, it is our heart. Some of that reconciliation has already started to begin, which is great, but we have much more to do. And then thirdly, uh, we have created an answer sheet with uh, frequently asked questions and posted it on our website that might have some of the answers for some of the questions that you might be asking. So I hope all that will help. Thanks for going on this journey with us. It means an awful lot. So thank you. All right. Thanks. All right. The second thing I want to tell you is that in two weeks, we are starting a new series that we are calling Hebrews Together. We've done this before, and it has been great. And if you have, are new and haven't gone through it with us, uh, this is what you can expect. We're going to have an eight-week series on Hebrews. We have developed this uh, study book to, that you can use in between the sermons to go deeper into what we're talking about. We're asking all of our community groups to also use this book in their community groups because we feel like it is best to learn together. So if you're not a part of a community group right now, this is a great time to jump in and try one out for eight weeks. You can get to know some people, and then you can be a part of everything that the church is doing together. So that's Hebrews together in two weeks. It's going to be great, all right? Okay. This weekend, we come to the end of our summer series, which we have called The Dirty Dozen, and I have uh, loved this series. We've looked at 12 people in the Bible that are unlikely people for God to care about, uh, for God to love, for God to come for, for God to use to make Jesus famous. And they're unlikely because of the life that they've lived, because of the mistakes they've made, because of the character flaws that they have. And what we've been hoping is that you would get two things from this series. One is for yourself and the other is for other people. And the one thing we want you to get for yourself is that no matter who you are, no matter what has happened in your life, no matter what mistakes you have made, this same God cares for you, loves you, comes for you, and can use you to make Jesus famous. 
And then when you look at other people that you feel like might be hopeless, for you to be reminded that no one is beyond the reach of the love of God because everyone can be part of the dirty dozen. That's what we want you to know. All right, so we're at the last of the 12, and his story is found in Mark chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 2. You can wait for the verses to come up on the screen. Let me read them for you. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. This is what it says. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is God's word. I love that last sentence where it says we never saw anything like this because Jesus sees things that we don't see. That's true in your life, and it's certainly true in mine. This is what I mean. This story begins with a paralytic who is being brought to Jesus, right? And it's very dramatic. Could not be more dramatic, right? They dig through the roof. Imagine what that would be like right now here. If someone began to dig through the roof in order to let somebody down right here. No matter how much they would be trying to pull the roof this way, you know debris would be falling on all of you, and you'd be squishing your way out that way to try to avoid. I would stop talking. Everybody would look up and wait for breathlessly to see if this guy could make it all the way. The only people who would be thinking anything other than that would be the contractors who go here who are trying to estimate in their minds how much it costs to repair what's going on. And they get Jesus all the way down. There are all kinds of interesting details, but one of the most interesting details is that they get, Jesus, they get this man right in front of Jesus, and then no one makes a request. No one makes a request. Right? In the previous chapter, Mark chapter 1, a leper comes up to Jesus and says, if you are willing, verse 40, if you are willing, you can make me clean. That's a request. But here, they go through all that trouble, bring the paralytic down in front of Jesus, and no one asks Jesus anything. Why not? Because it was obvious. It was obvious to everyone what this guy was doing there, why his friends wanted him in front of Jesus, what they wanted Jesus to do for this guy. It was obvious to everyone except Jesus. Jesus turns to him and says, your sins are forgiven. And if you had been in that crowd, you would have gone, what? What? You turn to the person next to you, what did he say? Your sins are forgiven. That didn't make any sense. I mean, 
Why would, that's even insensitive. That's not why he came. That's not what his greatest need is. It seems so obvious to everyone else, but not to Jesus. I don't know if this ever happened in your life. It has happened countless times in mine, I think, where I've brought Jesus a problem, and it seems so obvious to me what the problem is and what he should do for me, and it's frustrating that he doesn't see what I see, but I don't see what he sees. So there are three points I'm going to pull out of this story of Jesus and this paralytic. And the first point is what we think we need. The second point is what we really need. And the third point is where to go to find both. What we think we need, what we really need, and where to go to find both. First, what we think we need. It's a question. Why did these guys do what they did? I mean, I've told you that they they brought him before Jesus, right? Because they wanted Jesus to do something. But why were they so panicky? Why did they climb? It must have been a huge ordeal to haul a grown man up onto a roof on a makeshift gurney, take the tools and dig through the roof, an opening big enough to let him down on ropes. Why would they do that? Why not just, I don't know, wait patiently outside? Jesus had to come out sometime. Or ask one of the guys, the skinniest one, to worm his way through the crowd to get close enough to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, listen, when you're through, we have a friend out here. Would you mind stopping by on your way out? Why did they feel so panicky that they had to dig through the roof, claw through the roof to get to Jesus? Ever seen one of those um, Mission Impossible movies where the hero is uh, he has to find the bomb that if the bomb goes off, it's going to blow up, it's going to destroy the whole northern hemisphere. And he is fighting against, you know, tremendous odds. He finally gets to the end of the movie, he gets to the bomb, he's battered and bruised, he claws his way there, and he opens up the little case that the bomb's in, and there are all these different wires. They're all different colors. And the music's playing, and it's getting all dramatic, and he finally picks his wire, he pulls out the red wire. It's always the red wire. If you ever get yourself in that situation, clip the red one. But he pulls out the red wire, takes his wire cutters, grits his teeth, closes his eyes, and clips the wire. And as soon as he does, the bomb is disarmed, the world is saved, and everyone in the theater begins to breathe again. Why would these guys be so panicky that they would claw through a roof to lower their friend down in front of Jesus and then have Jesus come And instead of saying to their friend, rise and walk, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And they must have thought, he clipped the wrong wire. Right? I mean, what would you feel if you were the paralytic? What would you, how would you have responded? Honestly, I would have said, Jesus, thanks, I guess. But that's the wrong wire. I have a bigger problem than that. And Jesus says, no, you don't. No, you don't. And that's the point. Right? We, we think that we have a particular problem, but it's, Jesus says that's not your biggest problem. Right? These people, these friends, want their paralytic friend to come in front of Jesus, and they want more than anything else for him to walk again, to run again. And it makes perfect sense. It's absolutely understandable that that's the desire of this paralytic's soul. But what they're thinking is this, that if he could run again, if he could walk again, then that would remove the barrier that's keeping him from a fulfilling, contented, happy life. 
this would save him. And Jesus says, it won't. Right? Why not? I, I drive around Hudson, and I see uh, you know, some of the houses in Hudson. We have big, beautiful houses in Hudson. And uh, this week, I thought about what it would be like for me to take a picture of one of those big, beautiful houses and take a picture of the cars that the, the owners had and then take a picture of their family. And if I could time travel back, you know, back to where the owners of the house were like 18 or 19 years old, and I could show them what their life was going to be like, and I would say, listen, I'm a time traveler from the future, and I want to show you what the house is going to be like you're going to live in someday. Look at this house. Look at these cars. Look at this family, right? And they would just think, if that's going to be my life, I will be thrilled. If that's my life, I will be happy. I will be content. But we all know that there are plenty of big, beautiful houses filled with unhappy people. And the question is, why? And the answer is, we go through our lives trying to find the right thing that will save us, that will heal the brokenness inside of us. We're all trying to find the right wire to clip. And it it leads to kind of an an if-only syndrome. If only I had a good marriage. If only I had a better job. If only I would make partner. If only I could be popular. If only this storm would pass, whatever storm it is. If only I had kids. If only I didn't have kids, right? (laughs) Finish that sentence. If only what? If only this, then my life, the brokenness of my life would be redeemed. Then my world would be saved. Then I would be happy and content. This paralyzed man comes to Jesus. And inside he is saying, if you will just let me walk again, if you will just let me run again, then I will be content. And Jesus says, that's not the secret. That's not the secret. The roots of discontent run deep in the human, par- in the human heart, deeper than you know, deeper than you think. And that brings me to the second point, which is what we really need. Look at verse 5. Jesus says this, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. What a crazy thing to say. I mean, it's a crazy thing to say for at least two reasons. One is that's not what he's asking for. It's not even in the same ballpark. And number two, they don't seem like they have a history together. So it's a non sequitur. It doesn't make logical sense. Let me deal with both of those. First is it's not what he's asking for. That's actually a biblical problem. Because it seems like in the Bible, in order to be forgiven by God, you have to ask. You have to ask. Right? We talked about the verse 1 John 1, 9 last week. 1 John 1, 9 says, is if we confess our sins, if we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In fact, every other place in the Bible, it says in order to be forgiven, you have to repent. You have to ask, except for here. And, you know, I think it's safe to assume that Jesus knew what the rest of the Bible says about how to be forgiven. So if Jesus is not contradicting the entire 
rest of the Bible, then it's actually telling us something quite amazing about Jesus. Actually, it's telling us two amazing things about Jesus. And the first is that he knows what's in this man's heart. He knows what's in your heart. And that actually comes right out of this text. Because when he does say, your sins are forgiven, there are people there who begin to think, wait, that's blasphemous. How can he do that? Jesus says, How do you know, or why do you ask that in your heart? Because Jesus knew what was in their heart. And when I say Jesus knew what was in this man's heart, it means that, it means that this man was making some inarticulate desire for forgiveness that he couldn't quite put into words or he didn't speak out loud, but it was enough for Jesus. And that leads me to the second most amazing thing about Jesus, and I love this about him, is that his grace is aggressive. Let me switch that. Jesus is aggressive with his grace. If you've ever hurt somebody or sinned against somebody and you needed to ask forgiveness, you know how painful it is if they are stingy with their grace. You go to somebody and you've hurt them and they have their arms folded like this and they're giving you the dead eye. Like, you know, and you say, listen, I want to say I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? And they just keep waiting. You keep on going lower and lower. You keep repeating it, repeating it. And finally they say, I guess I'll forgive you. That's stingy, right? And it's just painful. But you probably also had the time when you have asked somebody for forgiveness and they've been aggressive with their grace, where you go to them and you say, listen, I just want to say I'm so sorry. Before you get the words out, they wrap their arms around you and they say, of course I forgive you. Of course I forgive you. I'm so glad that we're back together again. It hurt me that we were apart and I wanted you to come back and I'm so glad you have. Jesus looks at this man, this paralytic, and he knows his heart. And even though this man doesn't even put it into words that he speaks out loud, Jesus is so aggressive with his grace that he says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is like that with you too. If you will just have an an inarticulate desire for forgiveness, if you just turn to him and give him the, the smallest crack, he rushes in to forgive you. But the second reason that this doesn't make sense is they don't seem like they have a history together. And of course, you know, if you don't have a history with somebody and you say, I I can't forgive you for something you've done to somebody else, right? That doesn't make any sense. But Jesus turns to this paralytic and he says, oh, we have a history. We have a history. Everything you have ever done, every sin you have ever committed, every offense you have ever been guilty of is against me whether you realize it or not, and I'm the only one then who has the right and the authority to forgive you. And that brings me to the other question. Why does Jesus think that forgiveness is what this guy needs? Why does Jesus think that forgiveness is what you need? And this is the answer to that. You know, whenever I uh, go to a doctor or feel like I have to go to a doctor, I usually go because of a symptom that I'm experiencing some ache, some pain, something I don't, I can't get rid of on my own. You probably do the same thing. But when you get to the doctor, you're hoping that your doctor will be able to figure out the disease and not just treat the symptom. You want the doctor to treat the disease, right? Jesus 
comes here. Now, this is important. Listen to this. This is true. Every bit of sadness that you experience, every sorrow, every bit of anger, every bit of frustration, every pain, symptom. Those are all just symptoms. What Jesus says is the big disease is that you have been separated from the source of all life and joy and love. You are separated from God himself. That is the disease. And Jesus comes and he says, I'm not going to deal with the symptom until I deal with the disease. You know, I I love props. And uh, a few years ago, I used a prop of a live goldfish. And I don't know if you were here, but this is what I I had a a bowl with a goldfish in it. And I got the goldfish out and I put him on a plate. I I think it was a he. And I, I put him on a plate and I held him here and I tried to make my next point and no one heard what I was saying. Because everyone was just looking at the goldfish and wondering how long the goldfish was going to survive. Right? It, was a, it was a prop gone awry. Right? <laughs> but my point was the goldfish was created for a particular environment. Right? The goldfish was created to live in a particular environment, and if you take that goldfish out of the environment for which it was created, it matters not what else you give that goldfish. It's the same thing with you. You were made to be in relationship with the God who is the source of all love and all life and all joy. And when you're separated from that God, it matters not what else you have. Right? Jesus comes, this paralytic comes before Jesus, and he says to Jesus, Jesus, I need you to address this symptom And Jesus says, let me deal with the disease first. So if the first point is what we think we need and the second point is what we really need, the third point is where we go to find both. And this is verse 9 through 12. Jesus is speaking and he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus begins with a question. He says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Right? Whenever Jesus asks a question, you need to pay attention because he's trying to teach something important with his question. And it's a great question. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed, and walk? This is Mark chapter 2, very, very early on in the gospel. From this moment on, Jesus must die. From this moment on, he has to go to the cross. He has to resurrect. you know why? Because when he says to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, he has given him a check. And he must make good on that check. And you know what that will cost him? 
He will have to go to the cross. He will be betrayed. He will be abandoned. He will be hung up on a cross and screaming out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Infinitely harder to say your sins are forgiven than to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. In fact, there's some very gifted orthopedic surgeons in our congregation who might have been able to operate on that man and give him the ability to walk and to run again. But there is no one who had the authority to tell him and the power to tell him, your sins are forgiven. And that's true with you too. There is no one who has the power and authority to say to you, though your sins, they are many, my mercy is more, except for Jesus. And if Jesus loves you that much, that he would go to the cross, die, resurrect, so that you could be reconnected to the source of all life and love and joy. If he loves you that much, then you can bring him your symptoms too. You can bring him your marriage. You can bring him your pain. You can bring him your sorrow. You can bring him your disappointments. You know, I've been reading in 2 Corinthians. It's such a, a great letter. And I was reading uh, this past week, one morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is what it says. Paul says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You know what Paul is saying there? Paul is saying, listen, I know that Jesus has come and what Jesus did on the cross, what he did when he resurrected, is that he reconnected me to the, to the environment for which I was created, to the very essence of God, to the love and joy and glory of God himself. And because he has done that for me, I know that he loves me, and I take every one of my symptoms to him. But even if he doesn't do something about the symptom that I bring to him, I know that he loves me so much that one day every symptom will be gone and everything will be turned to glory. So whatever you are going through, whatever symptom you might be experiencing from this broken, broken world, make sure that you have gone to Jesus to get the cure for the disease, and then you can bring your symptoms to him. So in this last story of the Dirty Dozen, this amazing story of the paralytic, we learn what we think we need, what we really need, and then where to go to find both. And that answers Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you, and I am so grateful. I am grateful that you uh, are aggressive with your grace. Uh, I thank you for the people here who have already uh, experienced that grace, and I pray that we will be reminded of what it means that you love us so much and that our disease has been healed and our relationship with God restored because of what you have done. And I pray that we will have the confidence to bring you everything because we know that you love us. And I pray also for the people who have not yet experienced your grace. I pray that they will experience that today, that they will have even an inarticulate desire for forgiveness and will leave a crack open enough for you to rush in. 
and give them your love and your forgiveness and your grace. Thanks. We commit ourselves to you and we worship you today. We pray this in your name. Amen.